Well, have you noticed that sometimes the people who bring us great love and comfort can also be kind of scary people? Now, some of us have experienced that in, in hard uh, ways, um, in dangerous, abusive, unhealthy ways. But even in our healthy relationships, sometimes the people who love us the most can be scary people. For example, my mom. She's great. I love her so much, and she loves me so much, and we have a good relationship. It's been fun uh, to cook and bake alongside my mom. It's been fun to have heartfelt conversations. She has risen up to my defense on many occasions, even without being asked. But in those times, when we were kids and we were given a list of tasks to do while she was out, and if we blew those tasks off uh, and then heard her coming in the door, there was this sense of fear that filled me, and I started scurrying around the house so that at least it would appear that I was still busy doing the tasks on the list, that she would know, that she knew it would take 10 minutes if we just did them all, right? But she's been gone for hours, and we're still working on it. Or those times when we were being rebellious and unruly, and yes, it happened. <laughs> um, and she had warned us, and then we heard the sound of that drawer in the kitchen being opened with passion as she found the wooden spoon. Now, my mom's favorite tool for discipline, I think, was conversation. But her go-to tool when that wasn't working was the wooden spoon. Now, a couple weeks ago, we had a conversation with her, and she said, I don't think I ever actually used it. I just threatened it. My memory is a little different. <laughs> but it's true, it was rare. But sometimes the people that love us so deeply can feel like, kind of scary people when we experience the wonder and the authority that they have in our lives, when we're hurting them, things like that. And I think that's part of the picture that we get as we re-enter this scene with Isaiah in the throne room of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Our Advent series this year is Anticipating the King. We are getting ready to experience the, our coming king, our rescuer, our Messiah, Jesus. And we do that in three ways, and they're learning about this in the family journey these days as well. We celebrate Jesus coming, God of the universe coming in flesh to us in history. We also celebrate him coming to us today as we prepare our hearts and receive him in a new way, as we uh, study and prepare our hearts for this celebration of Christmas, but as we invite Jesus to continue to walk with us day in and day out. And we also celebrate Advent as we look ahead to his promised return when he will come in all his strength and glory and make all things right. And so it's this season of Advent for us and 
we're diving in. We want to prepare our hearts. And as, as we walk through this series together, we're going to continue to look at passages from Isaiah that point us to this anticipation of our king. But we'll also combine it with some other uh, scripture passages from the New Testament as well, as we kind of have been through our series in Isaiah. But we're going to read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. You'll find it on page 590 in your pew Bibles, but the words are also on the screen. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we too, by your invitation, enter into your throne room. You fill this place and more. You are remarkable, glorious, holy, and anointed. And we bow in respect and humility before you. We pray that you would speak to us through this passage and help us prepare our hearts for you. For you more and more today and in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So preparing our hearts as we anticipate Jesus, we're going to reflect on three key points from this passage. We're going to break it into three pieces. And the first thing is that we recognize this culture shock that Isaiah experiences when he comes into the presence of God. Isaiah describes it beautifully. It engages almost all of our senses. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, sometimes we just hear that, and it just, like, makes sense poetically, but catch this. As Isaiah comes face-to-face with God in this vision, just the train of God's robe fills the whole temple. God's presence, his being, is so much bigger 
than even the space within the temple. And as he's seated on his throne, like Isaiah knows, he's experiencing the Lord. He can see him. But the way he describes it is that it's so overwhelming that the whole temple is filled only with the tail of God's robe. Then there are seraphim flying around, which we're introduced to, these fascinating angelic creatures, sometimes described as fiery beings because of the root of the Hebrew word. But not only are they probably on fire, but kind of like the burning bush, burning but not burning up, but they have six wings. And two of them, they cover their faces. Two of them, they cover their bodies. And two of them, they use to fly around. And as they're flying around in this overwhelming sense of God's glory filling this space, they call out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And their voices are so loud and so glorious as they proclaim the glory and wonder of God that the thresholds, the very temple that Isaiah is in, is shaking as in an earthquake. And smoke from incense fills this place. So as we enter into this throne room with Isaiah, we can see the wonder and the glory shining from this glorious being sitting on his throne, who's so grand and large, it's hard to like even begin to describe him. All Isaiah can say is that the train of his robe fills the temple, and he's so much bigger and more grand than that. But we can hear it. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We can feel the shaking of the room, of the earth underneath us. We can smell the incense as the smoke fills the space. This is a full body experience of the God of the universe. And Isaiah recognizes what holy means. That God is not like us. And it's scary in his presence. When we recognize the fullness of who God is, we know we don't belong here. Which leads us to this second moment. Oh, sorry. It's echoed in John. I want you to hear this. In the first chapter of John's gospel, as John is describing poetically who Jesus is and that he's come, in verses 9 and 10, it says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came in the fullness of all his glory. John will say that in just a couple of verses. We'll hear it later. But he came in such a way that we weren't overwhelmed by his glory when he came. But he is still the same God, full 
of glory in the whole earth. All of his creation is full of his glory. Yet we did not recognize him when he came. So as we anticipate Jesus coming, this experience of culture shock leads us, like it did Isaiah, to confession. And we want to listen to Isaiah's reaction in verse 5. Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We were just uh, talking about a, a similar experience in confirmation a few weeks ago when Peter was in the boat and first recognized who Jesus was. And he said, Lord, away from me, for I am a sinful man. When we come into the presence of God, even though we're welcomed there, God says, come to me. Come be with me. But when we recognize who he is, <laughs> I don't think that was me. <laughs> but maybe he's welcoming us. We got a notification. We're overwhelmed by the reality of who God is, how big and grand he is, how different he is from us, how much power he has, the authority with which he speaks. And we're overwhelmed. Isaiah says, woe to me. And already by chapter 6, he's already given some prophetic woes where he said, woe to you people who are not doing what God has called you to do, who have fought against his people you, his people, who have turned away. Woe, woe, woe. And he uses the same word and puts it on himself. In view of who God is and in this culture shock of experience between being a broken human being in the presence of this holy, perfect, all-powerful God who knows all things. He says, I'm ruined. What hope do I have? And his confession is that he's a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips. And I think that's a fascinating description of our experience with sin. It's uniquely interesting for Isaiah, who's called as a prophet of the Lord, right? His whole job is to speak on behalf of God to the people. But he says, my lips are impure. Even though you've given me this job, I know that the things I say and the things I think, the things that come from inside me, are tainted. I am a man who does not speak rightly about you, to you, with other people. And I come from a people who are just like me. It's also interesting as we think of this confession, because it's, 
it's distinctly different than how we often try to think about sin and justify it in ourselves, right? We focus on our hands and our actions, the things that we do. And we compare what we do to other people and we say, oh, see, I'm not that bad. But in the presence of this holy and righteous God, the things that Isaiah is compelled to confess go far beyond what he did with his hands to the core of his heart and his being to say the thoughts and attitudes of my heart and the things that I say are not worthy of you, Lord. And it gets to a deeper point of what sin actually is. That deep inside us, we really wish we were God. We know we could fix all the problems in the world if everybody just did it our way. At least we'd be less frustrated. Woe to me, I'm ruined. Because the things I say and the things I think and the things that are deep in me keep me far away from you, Lord. But as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we then discover Jesus' gift of atonement and we get a glimpse of it here in Isaiah. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us exactly which altar it comes from. It may be likely that it came from the altar of offering, but it's interesting to consider that it may have come from the altar of sacrifice. That in the temple of the Lord there was already a lamb slain to pay for the sins of the people. And its charred flesh left a coal that this angel came and brought to Isaiah. And Isaiah said, my sin is so apparent in my lips the things that I say, the things that I think, reveal that I'm a broken, sinful person. And the angel brings the coal from the altar and sears Isaiah's lips and basically says, the Holy One has a solution for that. And he alone has taken away your sin. You see, the one who loves us so deeply can be so scary because he's not like us. He's perfect. He makes no mistakes. He's righteous and a judge. He has all power and he knows all things. And he loves us. And he wants to rescue us. And as we anticipate this King Jesus who comes to us, we find in him a God who comes not only in his power, but also in his love. 
that as Jesus entered our world, our time, our space, our history, he put on flesh. He didn't really get rid of his glory, but he masked it for us and we missed it. But he came to reveal it in new and deeper ways as well. In the first chapter of John, he continues, he says, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The experience that Isaiah had in the throne room, that glory is the same overwhelming glory that was true in Jesus. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace truth. As we anticipate this King this Advent season, it's a good opportunity for us to reflect on the fact that we often think that God has a split personality. We see the wrath he's capable of in his relentless campaign and strategic battle to stomp out evil. But we also know he, he loves us. He's gracious to us. He wants to rescue us. And he's patient with us because he wants no one to perish, but all to come to repentance and eternal life. And so often we get this picture that God has to put aside his righteousness in order to extend grace to us. But as we see that the earth is full of God's glory, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that as we see Jesus put on flesh and be the God of the universe who lives among us and sacrifices himself for us. We see the glory of God in his grace and his truth. His holiness is not only his righteousness. His holiness is that he is perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly gracious, perfectly judging, all at the same time. He doesn't have to choose which emotion to put on like we do. When I get frustrated with my kids, I have to think, okay, am I just frustrated about my day or is there really something here that needs to be disciplined? Did they just annoy me because I was already annoyed or did they do something wrong? And then I have to think, okay, well, how do I, how do I 
what's the right role of grace in this? Because I, I want to represent the Lord well, and I want to nurture them and discipline them carefully, but I, I want them to know what the standard is. But I also need them to recognize that I know that I don't keep the standard any better than they do, and it's a mess. Okay, that's just a glimpse into the thought process for five seconds. God doesn't have that. There's no confusion in him. The holiness of God is not only his righteousness, it's that he's so different and separate from us in all that he is, in all of his perfection. He is perfectly righteous judge, perfectly gracious savior, all at the same time. And it's all holy. It's not like us. That is what we need. Earlier in this chapter, John writes, about Jesus. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. As we prepare our hearts to experience a God with the glory and might and majesty that fills the throne room in Isaiah 6, We, like Isaiah, might say, I am ruined. What hope do I have? But the promise and the truth is that Jesus has come for exactly that reason. That he wants to transform us with hope. That our experience of his glory might expose our weakness and brokenness so that as we confess it, he can say, I am the solution for that. Stay with me. One of the most powerful verses that I think we read in our communion services is John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. In all his might, in all his glory, in all the wonder that he has, in all the power. After seeing centuries and centuries of human rebellion and the ways that we just break ourselves and break each other. With all that pent up frustration that I would imagine. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save us through him. Because his grace and his righteousness are equally glorious and overwhelming. Let's pray. Father God, what a blessing even to call you that as we picture the glory of your throne room and the wonder 
and might you hold. But you invite us to call you Father, Dad. You are our glorious King, and you nurture us and love us like a father. We pray that this Advent season, you would overwhelm us with your glory. That we would have an experience like Isaiah, that it would, even as we read your word, that it would feel like we can hear what's going on in your presence. That we would smell the incense and feel the world shake in your presence. Hear the echoes of the angels' praises along with our own. But we confess to you that our experience with you reveals that we are broken and sinful people, that our guilt separates us from you. It doesn't feel like we belong, like it's safe with you. But we know, Lord Jesus, that you came to change that, to change us, to make us your children, children of the God of the universe. And so we pray that you would move in us, do your work in us. We thank you for what you have done because you have finished it. But we know that in our experience today, there's more for us to experience. We pray that you walk with us as we experience it. That you would be honored and glorified in every part of our lives and in all parts of the world because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name.